Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. The CFO role is changing rapidly, moving from cost controller to strategic visionary. And with every change comes opportunity. We are here to help you take advantage of this transition, to win at work, drive your career forwards, and lead with confidence. Join Hannah Monroe, Managing Director of ITAS, a financial transformation consultancy, as she interviews key experts to give you real-world advice and guidance on how to transform your processes, people, and data. Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. Starting a new CFO role doesn't have to be daunting. So whether you are new to the role or just new to the company, our 90-day master plan will help you get off to the best possible start with a shared collection of research, advice and guidance inspired by the CFO 4.0 podcast. So what are you waiting for? Download it now at www.itassolutions.co.uk. So hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of CFO 4.0. As usual, um, I am your hostess, uh, taking you through everything financial transformation. And with me today is Rob Jackson. Now, he doesn't officially like his title, so I'm just going to introduce him as the person in charge of finance operations as Sage. But for those that don't know him, he does have a rather nice title with a V and a P in it. So we're going to leave it at that and move on. So hi, Rob. Great to have you on the show. Hi, Anna. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me on. Brilliant. So so tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, how did you end up doing what you do at Sage? What was your journey? Yeah, a weird and um, wiggly route, I suppose, like like quite a lot of careers these days. So I am, I think I'm actually hit my 20 year of like proper grown up working because I don't <laughs> count running Mr. Rabbit's tropical travels at Thorpe Park as a, as a proper job, right? So, um, <laughs> so and I've been 50-50 professional services and industry roles actually over those, those 20 years or so. And I've moved in between the two rather than a, a block of 10. So I've worked for BA Systems, BT and Sage on the corporate side. And I've worked to two stints with EY and one period of time with IBM as well on more sort of finance transformation consulting side of things. And I've just kind of moved between the two. And and here I am doing what I think is my favorite role so far, uh, uh, which is good. So, so why don't you just explain the role you're currently doing? What, how would you describe it? Yeah, sure. So I'm responsible for group finance operations at Sage, and that really has two big elements to it, right? So one would be those, you know, what you'd expect from finance operations, the core finance elements of uh, running processes that support collecting cash from customers, that support paying suppliers, indeed paying partners accurately and on time, and that support closing the books reliably and accurately on time, hitting all of our schedules. So our finance shared services, um, essentially running those core core processes, and then the other arm of my my role is more on the transformation change and systems side of things. So I have the team who uh, look after all of our enterprise performance management software. So planning, reporting, consolidation, that kind of stuff. And I have a team of process analysts, change and process systems support kind of ticketing um, people on the ERP side as well. 
So that's a that's a lot of moving parts in terms of sitting under the obviously your remit. What are some of the the, the challenges that you face when you know, working on a financial transformation piece with such a such a big team? Yeah, so I, what I would say is, in my opinion, there are more upsides than than challenges from that perspective because. The brilliant thing about it is you can drive the change, but you're also responsible for the people who are absorbing a lot of that change. So, so whereas sometimes things can get misaligned when you've got a team that's just transformation and they aren't as well connected to the ops you might want to, you know, I'm there to play that bridge and that role to make sure everything's um, joined up. But you know, when you have... I mean, we're not the biggest finance operations group in the FTSE 50 by by any stretch of it, but you know, 250 people all in different locations. There are a whole set of team and people interesting challenges and cultural aspects to to work on and deal with. And because of some of the history of of where Sage has come from, from a finance function, from an overall corporate perspective, you know, we have some some kind of challenging process contexts and disparities across our group to to get over and do better as in order to give you know those standard processes, higher quality outputs that, that we'd be looking to deliver. So when you were coming into the the transformation role, because how long have you been in the role now? Uh, so getting on for two and two and a half years, not that far off now. I was going to say, because I, I remember it popping up on my feed when you uh, you joined at one point. So, um, but yeah, so two and a half years in, what, what was it that actually attracted you to work at Sage in the first place? And in this kind of role, what was it that sort of caught your interest? So uh, there's a number of things, really. It was, it was, Partly it was the ability to do both of those things, right? Both the operations. I really like the big people management and the communication and the engagement of a big team, but but I need the interest and challenge of transformation um, as well. So so this role had both of those packaged together. I was super interested and still am in Sage as a business, you know, as a effectively a finance transformation professional, a finance operations professional. You know, the products that we sell is a finance transformation product or the products as well as obviously we have fantastic people products as well right but so actually a product you could really be interested in the front office of the side of things because you know i had a great time at bt and bae but those those product sets weren't something i was really passionate about um if i'm honest so so it's that aspect and you know, really parochially down to my life. I live in London. I like living in London <laughs> and there aren't that many of my types of jobs that actually are based in the, the center of London. So I get to sit here in the shard, do my job, travel around pre-pandemic. Um, <laughs> and so all of that just kind of kind of ticked all my boxes. Absolutely. So you talked very much about the people management and the communication being something that you're, you know, personally quite passionate about. And obviously that I think people really underestimate the impact of that on financial transformation. So talk to me about you starting a new work stream or new project. How, what's, what are the things that people need to think about? And what do you do when you're, when you'll start kicking off a new financial transformation program or project? Yeah. So I think even before we sort of move to an individual project, there's, there's some general rolling the pitch and cultural change that that you need to uh, get people ready for so that actually because you know finance transformation programs and projects 
I think the world we're living in, like, there will never be a time when we're not transforming or evolving fast, however which way you do it. So actually setting yourself up to say, this is a program and then this is a period of normality, I, I, I don't think that works anymore. So so one of the things that I started preaching immediately after I joined was this kind of that we needed a culture of innovation and being prepared to challenge and change things always, right, regardless of – and then you have bigger or smaller initiatives within that the bigger ones you then have to set up properly from a project perspective you get your stakeholder management you do all of those kind of traditional things but but what's been interesting to me especially in this is actually the power of the small wins and the continuous improvement if you can get enough people along on that journey and put enough yeah and we're not quite at the citizen developer stage but but we've put more capability in more people's hands and it's really helping us drive some continuous improvement without having to declare big projects and the governance and gates and all of the things that that go with the the bigger change projects so you mentioned an interesting concept around getting your citizens on board, as it were. So for those that don't, maybe have not sort of gone into this depth of transformation and some of the science behind it, talk to us about that approach, that that concept of small wins and, you know, handing over responsibility. What are you doing there? Yes, I mean, I guess the, the theory um, was a blend of two things. One, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the, partly the British cycling Dave Brailsford marginal <laughs> gains type yeah. stuff, right? How, how little things add, add up together. And partially this point about wanting to move fast and have people feel empowered. And actually, because of the structure, you necessarily need to put around big projects because sometimes there are niche skills involved. You you have that wind up time and that project. And that's that's great and that's necessary on many big changes. But there are other things, you know, with the evolving workflows, using some of the Microsoft power type um, tools that you can do much faster. And if you can give people in your teams as either continuous improvement leads or champions and things like that, the capability and the empowerment just to go do, right? You're not fundamentally going to break anything here. Go, go, go do. Uh, we've seen really good benefits and those benefits obviously in terms of the process and speed and customer service but what i've been able to see where i sit we spend a lot of time looking at our employee net promoter score so emps and what's relatively easy for me to see is the teams that most embrace that oftentimes almost all the time the ones with a higher uh, employee nps because they feel as though they've got more control over their working environment, their working day and the processes that they're um, being asked to execute. So if I summarize that then, so what you're doing is you're handing over the ability to customize and automate their own workflows, sort of like what we talk about, when we talk about BPA or business process automation. You're giving individual teams across Sage um, access to those tools, not just the finance teams. That Have I got that right? Yeah, across finance operations for sure. Um, so, so, and the thing, especially with the Microsoft stuff, is you know we're wall-to-wall Microsoft, right? So actually, everyone's got a lot more capability at their hands than they really realize. And what we've just tried to do is harness that by 
using Power Apps to make things more intuitive by using Power Automate where it's sensible to do so. And those are things where we don't have to go through a procurement exercise. We don't have to go through IT architecture exercises and all of that kind of stuff. We can we can get on and do. And yeah, it's not all that we do, but it's it's important to address the tactical, the short term as well as the strategic. Yeah, and I think that's what excites me. So there are, and just for everyone listening, there are lots of business process automation tools. So BPA for short. Um, and it's really exciting that at the tools that are coming out, both in terms of small, medium and large, you know, finance software have the ability to connect into these tools to allow these processes to be automated. So if we talk about, you know, that concept of small wins of handing over responsibility, how do you balance that with fundamentally like making sure that processes are streamlined and that something that they do doesn't impact the wider finance operation? So how do you, how do you make sure that they're not going down a route that perhaps isn't, isn't a good one? Let's put it that way. Yeah, and in part, that's why we've not gone that full citizen developer, a robot on every laptop type <laughs> type concept, right? Because yeah. that that would worry me. So, so what we've done is build up a series of SMEs and kind of center of excellence type stuff, whereby mm-hmm. we've got the core skills held within central teams in within finance operations, but we create a network of champions and continuous improvement leads in the shared service centers or in the sub teams within the shared service centers. So there's always a bit of, you know, between governance and kind of insight, knowledge sharing, what have you, there's, there are some eyes on, on, on what we're doing um, to keep it, to keep it sensible, to keep it joined up. Um, because those guys can say, actually, you're trying to solve the same problem that the South African Shared Service Centre solved two months ago. So actually, go go talk to them. You know, share the share the capability. And that's a really interesting piece, isn't it? Because Sage is a global team. You're working across in different continents, different countries, sometimes different languages. How do you make sure that your your teams are talking to each other during these transformation projects and sharing good practice? Yeah, and it's, it's definitely one of those much easier said, it's, and it's something that every, you can get. It's really easy to get everyone nodding along, like, yeah, yeah, we're going to talk to each other, we're going to work together. <laughs> it's much harder to get it to work in in reality. So I suppose there's a combination of things we do. One of actually the simpler things I do is actually we've got a Teams group that's got all of us on it. Right. And and fundamentally, it's, it's my primary communication mechanism. So I don't send all team emails or, or any of that kind of stuff. I just do it on Teams to drive people into Teams. But we also use it to share success on projects. And that comes from different teams. So, so it gives things a bit of visibility and gives people the opportunity to say, hey, that might work for me as well and know, know who's working on it. And then we try and drive cross cross functional in our context we're all finance but you know i mean um squads or teams uh where we're pulling people together and we will intentionally bring people in who maybe aren't directly involved but but would benefit from from understanding about that so it's you know it's kind of loose i suppose um but but we work it within our within our community 
Yeah, and I, and I like that on demand style approach. I talked a bit on our podcast a very long a while back about um, moving away from sort of emails and more self accessing information and updates at a time zone because again you've got time zones to counter with, haven't you? And sometimes emails coming through at uh, nine o'clock at night can be a little bit um, antisocial in some ways. So that's always interesting. So, so obviously, communication, sharing of knowledge and best practice. Um, what, what other is what else from a communication perspective is really key in terms of you know going through that transformation process? Um, what else is key? So, so partly it's the it's the culture and the mindset type thing. So, so one of the things we've been doing at Sage is. And we'd started doing it in in my area and we got in IBM because I'd been there to do some design thinking training. And now it's, a, you know, separately, it's a, a much bigger thing at Sage. And we have an internal continuous innovation team that sits kind of out of our sort of product-ish um, area who run design thinking training for everyone. And and so partly is, is is that mindset of getting people saying this is a normal part of our job now this is essential and what it helps me do is I see the people in my team and I've had about sixty seventy people now in my team who've put themselves through the design thinking training it's it's really clear to then sort of champion those people highlight it because that for me is an indicator of a mindset of someone who's who's going to be with us on that future journey who's prepared to challenge their current thinking and and therefore develop their skills and all those things we're going to need in the like the near future world as well as the the longer future world so there's definitely a thing about mindset and skills as well as the the knowledge sharing so I've got a few interesting questions on this because I have this debate a lot. Do you, so obviously you work across financial fi- operations and transformation. So you sort of architect the both. Um, do you have a different uh, mindset? Do you, do you see those two as fundamentally different types of people or is it just happen to be the role that they're currently performing? Um, I tend to live in the greys. Um, so there are people who can move between the two, right? For for sure, and be successful in both. I think inevitable. There are some people, however, in operations who couldn't do that, uh, and there are some people in transformation who couldn't do that either, right? For entirely different reasons, right? Um, and and one of the things I try really hard to work on because I'm communicating to actually quite a diverse group. Um, from from any perspective, you might want to talk about that so yeah one of the bits of feedback actually quite a lot of us have had but but me personally had as well is you know you can talk a bit like uh, everyone understands what the company strategy is or and even things that that some might think are, are baked in like what SAS stands for and actually you know if you put yourself down to an order to cash agent um, who who might be relatively new out of school or or what have you. They haven't necessarily been on that journey yet. Not everyone goes on the Your Sage webpage and devours kind of the all hands and the strategy updates in the same way as like someone like me um, might. So so having the ability to communicate in a way that 
all across my teams will connect with is is something I, I try to work on. I'm a long way from perfect on it, but you, but you do have to be able to communicate to, I suppose, in, to your point, quite different profile of people and quite sometimes a, a different mindset. Now, like I say, my, my long-term view is those things are merging and you can have and need more people who can do both sides of it. But But for sure, there are different groups right now. And I think you've made a really interesting point because I I see the most successful teams when they've got a mix of that very operationally focused and transformation. And then, like you say, some people in the middle that can switch because I think that just gives you a much well more well-rounded. You've got a bit of specialism and you've got a bit of few all-rounders in there as well. So even with smaller teams, the ones that I've seen be incredibly successful, those that have that mix of skills as well across the board. Yeah, yeah. So, so for example, I'm just a really good is my transformation lead who's their sort of director of my major projects and innovation team previously ran the South African Shared Service Center, right? And and Etienne, hi Etienne if you're watching, right? He is like he's super detailed and organized, like operationally fantastic, right? But he's flipped into this other role where he's now, you know, driving our agenda around artificial intelligence, intelligent automation more broadly, plugging into but what's what's brilliant about how he's able to do that is he's been able to put himself into a kind of blue sky thinking future state. But he's always grounded in the operations of what will work and what won't. So we don't go wandering off on a tangent of something that's just not going to work for for where we are now. And that he is a good example of someone who can who's effectively been a switch hitter, right? He can do the operational bit and now he's doing the transformation bit. Yeah, no, I totally get that because it's really interesting. Obviously, we 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 are a big believer in diversity, even in our consultant pool, you know, people from different backgrounds, from different experiences. And what's really interesting is I do like working with some of the consultants that have actually worked in finance because they have a completely different perspective. So those that come from like a data analytics or a, a process focused organization, because they're very, very different in terms of how they approach things. So I think that's a good shout. And, and it, I think it's also a really interesting shout to those that have got existing teams is that transformation skills can be taught as long um, in terms of building that. And well, certainly I think so. I, I'll open that to yourself. You know, how, you know, can, do you think anybody can develop that transformation mindset or is it something that people instinctively have? Um, so I think probably anybody can it's just quite a lot of people can't aren't open enough in their mindset to access that part of them that could do it right and they you know it's it's that fixed mindset versus growth mindset type thing there are some people who just believe so strongly they couldn't do that 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 they they won't try right um but but yeah there's, there's definitely a higher proportion of people that could do it than, than, than actually do it. And it is as much anything about mindset and being able to fuse future thinking and operational reality as, as anything else. And when you're working with or building your team, and, and I guess if I maybe start with asking a question, how much, how much of your team now is team members that you brought in versus those that you've sort of trained up from, from previous? Like, have you got a mix or is it leaning one way or the other? So I I think I've done two external recruits since I joined two and a half years ago. And that um and actually one of those two external recruits has, has since left. So so actually 
what would that make it? 99.5%, 99.7% of the the team were already in Sage to one degree. Or other. Now, I'm probably talking at senior levels. We've had some people join externally or through grad programs, et cetera, et cetera, lower down. So, so I, I changed the team a bit. So some people did leave. A lot of people have been promoted and people are doing different roles than they were doing before. Um, but fundamentally, all of that capability was was there in Sage. And certainly when I joined, that was not the advice I got, but I decided to sit on it for a bit, understand it, work with the people, try and find the right slots for people. And and over time, I think that's, that's really paid dividends because we've got a nice stable team. We've been at Sage a while, really understand the business. Um, and and are moving things forward at a good pace, I think. Yeah, and and I I think it's really interesting the fact that when you joined, the perception of that team wasn't of one that could go on this journey with you. So what did you do? How did you bring them along the journey with you? What sort of, what sort of did you do? Coaching, mentoring, training? How did you take them on this journey? So I'll, I'll go back to the communication piece. But what I decided is I had to be prepared to be, there was some, as ever, there are kind of 10% of people who will kind of never get on board. And there are 10% of people who just on board instinctively, right? I want to do that. And they're, they're waving their arms. They want to be part of it. And then there's sort of 80% in the middle who are to one degree or other waiting to see, right? So I definitely went through a six month period where people are like, all right, you know, who's this bloke talking about customer empathy and Brené Brown and like <laughs> weird things like this in our finance shared service center. And I think quite rightly, they waited to see if I walked the talk because a lot of people don't, right? Um, and I think over time, they discovered that I tend to mean what I'm saying. And if I'm saying, you know, it's a good thing for us to take half a day off and all go do some exercise, I'm going to go and do that and they should do it too. And and various other things, they've seen me back up rhetoric, I think, with action. And I think that's what has helped us then coalesce and go from a place, you know, our, our employee NPS metric has risen very significantly over the, the two years, but it didn't go linear. I didn't have an immediate impact, right? And, and it's not all about me either. It's been, it's taken a little while. We got the team in the right place. We got the strategy clear. People could start to see we meant what we were saying and we were starting to deliver. Hopefully there's still loads more to do. Um, and, and, you know, now we've got, we've got a much more engaged um, and proactive team than I think we had before. And you, you mentioned obviously um, get, you know, sort of getting them to believe that when you say, um, things are, are are good that you know you're you're going to implement them and change those. What about the skills that the individuals have? Did you have to do any development with your existing teams to help them learn the skills needed for your transformation projects? Yeah, um, and you know, as ever in many places, training budgets are either predefined or or quite tight. So so one of the things that I've put my discretionary money towards is probably two things. Um, one of which is universal, which is the design thinking training, right? So either accessing the stuff that groups done or I brought in um, IBM to, to do that because that for me was a really important, you know, those skills actually, they're, they're more like facilitation skills than anything else, but it, it develops and accesses a different part of the mindset. And then the second bit is, is a bit more around work I've been doing with my leadership team and in some of the teams below on 
communication styles of people and how to, you know, the whole red, yellow, blue, green personality um, type stuff. And again, I can see that that's a bit more latterly in terms of the investment of that. I can see that starting to, to, to have some benefits, but, but for most of it, it's been just allowing people to do something slightly different and, and letting them find their own way to do it. So I wouldn't say that I had to do like a big, deep skills refresh. I'm sure both me and my team would love it if we could do that and we'll develop some things. But it's, you know, it's been ad hoc here, a bit of green belt here, a bit of design thinking there, you know, tools and systems training that it hasn't really been a pervasive thing. I think I'd probably be honest in saying. No, that's that's really interesting. So, so what do you think was the successful factor? So what do you think was the one thing or the few things that you did that have actually allowed you to achieve your transformation goals? So, so I, I genuinely think it was the team, right? I think most things start with the the team and the culture. Um, so, so therefore, it wasn't it wasn't really about me. It was always there. It just needed a bit of direction, um, pointing, and focus. So, like, if there was one thing, I think that I did, it was be really clear on what metrics define winning um, in finance shared services, because actually happy teams or teams that that think whether it's true or not right in our case i think it's true but uh they think they're winning right and so you know we would set really clear metrics around close accuracy and timeliness around dso and age debt around payment on time none of it radical but none of it here before that enabled the team to see actually we're doing all right and we're doing better and you know we've taken yeah i think over the last two years we've taken two-thirds out of our age debt ledger um and and part of that is just making it a proper focus as a metric which it wasn't wasn't before but it's the team that have collected that cash it's not me right and do you use those metrics as justification for sort of a project? Do you use that as a benchmark and measure it before and after? So, yeah. My team my team get bored of me, I think, saying I need a way to measure it. Um, uh, I need a way to know if we've been successful or not. And it's not so that I can say, you know, so that I can get a stick out and say, this has been a failure. It's so we understand what works and what doesn't work because some things don't work. Um, and if, you, if you're not measuring it, you don't understand whether it works or, or not. So, so yes, that's why, you know, we're just rolling out process mining right now. And, you know, the, the point of the process mining is for us to actually be able to say, right, we ran this initiative kind of, it started six months ago. Now, can we see that in the process mining metrics as well as our output metrics, right, which are a bit easier to do? So talk to us about process mining, because some people that listen on this this podcast may not even understand what that is. Talk to us a bit about what that is, how it works and where you use it. So my analogy for process mining is it's it's like a visual depiction of pushing blue dye down your process and seeing all the different routes that you know the blue dye takes and the answer is almost always way more different routes than you would want it to take and whoa why is that part of it going over there so many times and so it really helps you unlock process variations and process bottlenecks which if you're then pushing forward to process you know being really data driven on your process improvement initiatives 
you know, we think it's going to be fundamental. There are always some things that are obviously broken, but there are some things that create noise. But actually, it's, that's more about you going and managing a political stakeholder than it is a genuine process problem. And, and our hope is process mining will just put a fact base on that and help us prioritize and focus our sort of scarce process improvement resources. And is that is that your focus? Is that what you use to decide where areas to focus on in terms of your transformation efforts? Or are there any other sort of um, sort of factors that might affect which which efforts you go down? I, I think you're naive to ever think there aren't some political factors in terms of what you what you focus on, and there are you know a whole set of. Strat- you know, strategic initiatives across the company. You know, last year was our internally focused around um, year of the customer. So actually, we, we were asked to to think about prioritising our process improvement and things that will be customer impacting. So, you know, I've got quite a big audit cash team, so that's relatively easy to do um, in terms of there's a very easy direct link to the customer there that you can you can talk about. So we focused our robotics and you know drove some cash collection initiatives and um, sort of technology um, focus around that and we could point it at a customer strategy um you know so so process mining will become one part of it some of that will always be there but what what i'm trying to avoid is us getting distracted by things that actually don't make a big difference to to what we think is important within sage and within finance operations yeah. And it's so easy, isn't there? Because sometimes the decisions around where to improve can be around who shouts the loudest rather than actually where the, the blockages actually are. 100% and what seniority that person is and who they are shouting to <laughs> and what seniority a person they're shouting to. And I've, you know, um, I'll, I'll leave the, the region out of it, but I've spent a chunk of the last two weeks having to deal with an issue on a topic that really wasn't a big deal it really wasn't but it was being spoken about at certain levels as a big deal so therefore it had to be treated as as one but i didn't i didn't have the data to be able to knock it down quickly enough so i had to manage it from a stakeholder perspective and still am (laughs) yes and and i think that's a really interesting point though isn't it because sometimes financial transformation projects can seem a little bit wishy-washy in terms of their deliverables and what impact they're going to have on the organization and i think what you're saying there is that along with obviously these key kpis around operations plus your process mining you're actually allowed you're actually able to have better conversations with those perhaps more challenging stakeholders because you've got the data behind you yeah, exactly. That's the that's the premise, at least. <laughs> that's the theory. Um, yeah. But I, I guess there's a lot of processes to mine and to dig into. So, how do you know when to start? How do you pick your your your, your way forwards? Um, so, I mean, what I should, with the process mining, so we are rolling it out now, right? So, <laughs> I will not say we are at that point of sophistication where it's it's driving it's driving everything. But I think I think you have to roll it back to those what are what's the strategy of the business what are the priorities of the business so you know in in my area right 
payment on time is important and there's obviously there's a lot of compliance around it in the UK and we're a champion of small businesses so particularly for our kind of smaller suppliers and, and our partners of course uh, we need to make sure they get they get paid on time but strategically you know not many people ever going to talk to me about that our cash conversion and cash collection goes on the front page of our investor relations press release at you know at year end and at half year there is a lot of focus around that. So I have to make sure that I'm doing the right thing always and making sure we can give them a good service. But you, you're going to prioritize your resources to the things that are most closely aligned with either strategy or the things that drive our share price and shareholder value and all of that good stuff. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I think those challenges in terms of, you know, having limited resource while still um, wanting to achieve that transformation goes all the way through. So how do you balance your transformation efforts with your operational piece? So, because um, resources is always scarcity. You never have enough resources. I don't think I've ever spoke to somebody and they've said, yeah, we've got plenty of time to work on transformation. So how do you manage it? Yeah. What are your top tips? Um, there's, there's a listen to your team and that's um, listen to what they're, saying and not saying and kind of you you can tell when you're pushing someone a bit too far right i think oftentimes they won't say so but 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 you can kind of tell so i'm not sure whether this is a very good tip or not but it's kind of it's like how do you find the right level so people feel like they're moving pretty fast the strength but they're not gonna fall over and they feel supported and over time they feel comfortable enough to say hey rob listen you've asked me to do these three things i can't do all of them so do you want to help me prioritize two out of the three which is a conversation i'm always open to but just like any selfish manager there's sometimes i'm like eh, you know maybe you can do all three let's see, let's see <laughs> can what you squeeze he, he them or, in <laughs> he or she says right um but but you also got to know there are times to take your foot off the pedal. So so for example, you know, with COVID with various other things, like last year was a, a tough year and we'd got to kind of August. And because I'm around the world, it's not all the holiday season in August. But I, I made an explicit point of saying, listen, I want people to take a bit of a breather in August. Now, whether that's through holiday or whether that's just through deprioritizing some stuff and protecting your work-life balance over this period, then do that. Because I know that, you know, our year end, well, we're, we're going through that process. The moment it closed, September the 30th, this is a really, really busy time for us. And you have to have the downs to go with the peaks. Otherwise, you you lose people one way or another. See, I think that's really important because I, I think people forget that at some point you've got to give people a break. You can't do transformation for 12 months straight. You need that pause, don't you, in between different areas to love to downtime. And I think that's a, that is an amazing tip, I think, for people to think about when it, when are people actually going to get a break from the work and the change? You know, we, we don't mind doing a bit of date, you know, standard Excel processing just for a little bit, just to get our, our change back on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but again, you have to live it, right? So mm-hmm. I, I went a bit quieter than normal on the comms. I, you know, dropped some status meetings out of the calendar and stuff like that. You have to help people understand that actually it's all right. I, you know, I'm still doing what I need to do, but you know, let me let me look after me for a little bit here as well. Yeah. 
That's that's a really good point. So so we've said, so firstly, figure out people's limits and then watch for the things they're not saying, like you said, but still challenge when you think there's there's capacity. And then also making sure that you give people downtime and a chance to to recover from your transformation efforts in the first place. Brilliant. Well, to be honest, Rob, um, I am I'm loving this conversation and we haven't even got into the practical elements of running a transformation program. We've just talked about people and culture and some great, some really great stuff. And I'm hoping our listeners have got out as much of it as I have because I find it fascinating. But if you had to say for those that are about to undertake a transformation project, I'll, I'll give you three things that they need to think about and make sure they've got in place before they start what what would you say that they need to think about uh what i say they need to think about so is always 100 a stakeholder thing and and so my learning at sage in particular is you know try and hug it um as close as you as you possibly can but also again my learning and my development is you can sometimes think my IT business partner, I get on fire with my IT business partner. So all is great. But just like I don't represent all the finance and there's tax and treasury and, you know, the accounting reporting guys, IT is multifaceted as well. And, you know, being able to make sure the data architect team and, you know, the infrastructure team know what you're doing um is you know something i i probably haven't invested enough time in and we've seen some you know transformation hiccups over over my period at sage from 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 the back of that so that that would certainly be one uh second would be you know that you've got you've got the team that you really trust in it um so certainly if you're in a role like mine where you're setting multiple things off at a time and i'm one of those people whose interest in something is very high at the start very high at the end and much less so <laughs> during the middle right <laughs> you need the the people who can really deliver on those projects that you can trust with your ideas and your babies like off and do it and know they're going to do a great job but importantly know they will come back to you during that disinterested period from my side, if there's something they, they need from me and won't spin their wheels um, off somewhere if they can if they can help it. So having having your delivery team that you trust. And that's why, you know, consultants, I'm an ex-consultant, is an important part of the ecosystem, particularly on big transformation projects. And I would sort of include consultants and third parties that you trust in that in that same equation. But having some transformation capability within your own team um, who know what they're doing and understand your business is really, really important. Um, and then, and then, yeah, I think thirdly, it's just understand that everything's a collaboration and a partnership and that if you keep communicating all the way through, you will run faster than if you get maniacal about anything be that a timeline be that you know particular niches of capabilities you need to stay kind of fluid and pragmatic and understand that better is you know you you don't give away better in this in the search of perfect because my fundamental belief is everything's iterative now it's not about big 
bang, three years of declared transformation and then nothing after that. It's going to be ongoing. So if you can get yourself a bit further up, even if it's not every, everything you wanted, you can come back to that via a different route later. But, you know, and certainly, you know, there have been some projects here that have stalled for a bit because we've been searching a bit too much for, for perfection and could have accepted a smaller win, but got there faster. Yeah, one of my one of my my uh, mottos and phrases is search for you know strive for agility, not perfection, because you can end up. With, I think it comes with the the finance piece as well. You can aim for that perfect report with every data down to the penny, and actually, what what value is it being out? You know, is that finding that extra penny versus the two p? You know, it, it's not going to add value, um, and sometimes, yeah. I, I love, I, I, I 100% agree with number three. Actually, all three of them, I think they were really great points. Yeah. So guys, and I know, <laughs> go for it. I know, I know you had Jonathan on uh, not not so long ago, and Jonathan's a great, uh, you know, exponent of the 80-20 rule, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's sort of similar to the point I'm making at the end. It's like, stop stop looking for 100 if actually 80 is there for you to, to take because that's better than where we are today and you come back for that 20 later. And I think it goes back to your point about winning. If you're always holding your team against the 100%, you know, the likelihood of them being feeling as winners as well is, is so much harder. Whereas actually you get the 80% and they hit it, you know, they're more, they're, they're, that's actually achievable and they'll feel like they win, which means they win more. So you might actually end up hitting that 100% if, you know, later on. So, yeah. No, that that is fabulous. And um, we are unfortunately out of time. So I want- We're at dog walk time. Oh, yeah, no, anyone that's walking the dog is, is, is desperate to get walk back in the house and, uh, um, and <laughs> feed the dog probably. So um, I wanted to say a massive thank you um, on behalf of myself and obviously all of our listeners. This has been a brilliant conversation about transformation and great to speak to somebody that's actually living the dream of finance transformation. <laughs> It is a dream, right? Let, let's let's talk about totally. that. <laughs> so um, thank you again, Rob. It was amazing to have you onto the show. And um, obviously, um, for any of our listeners, would love to hear your thoughts and feedback on this session because it's always great to hear what other questions. And if you're very, very lucky, I might be able to convince Rob to come back on again someday and talk <laughs> to us about some other areas of transformation. It would be a pleasure. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Rob. All right. Thanks, Anna.